The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Composer and saxophonist Matthew Evan Taylor has been hailed as a promising new voice by the Miami Herald and a risk-taker by the Huffington Post. His music has been described as insistent and defiant and envelopingly hypnotic. As a Southern kid who worshipped at the altar of Cannonball Adderley, Ornette Coleman, and Charles Mingus, Matthew's music has been performed across the United States and Europe by such ensembles as the Cleveland Orchestra, the Detroit Symphony, the Metropolis Ensemble, the Imani Winds, and the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. As a performer, Matthew has worked with fellow musicians, visual artists, as well as choreographers and dancers. His most recent project, New Century, New Voices, is a concert series in Middlebury, Vermont, celebrating the continued contributions of women and composers of color to the classical music canon. The inaugural season, which began in January 2019, included collaborations with composers Carlos Simon, Marcos Balter, Gabrielina Frank, and the Vermont-based new music ensemble, Turn Music. Matthew is an assistant professor of music at Middlebury College in Vermont.
My process begins with uh, making sound. I like calling it vibrating the air. I'm a saxophonist, so either improvising on saxophone, some wind instrument, or um, piano. Sometimes I go into it with a specific idea kind of already in mind, but a lot of times I just am looking for just that right combination of, of a couple of notes that like kind of strikes me as, oh yeah, that, there's something there. But for me, it's kind of a, an embodied thing, the, the very beginning of the process. It needs to be something that kind of resonates through me. Um, and, and that way I, I'm kind of, I have a conviction behind it that allows me to kind of keep de- being dedicated to the idea. What gets you in front of the saxophone? What gets you to the piano? What are the things that are, are going to inspire you to, to get there? It can be scattershot, but a lot of times visual stimulation can get me there. So if, if I've seen a particularly interesting art exhibit, like uh, when the Guggenheim had uh, Wil- uh, Vilma von Klimt, uh, her, her abstractions, that was really mind-blowing and, and led to uh, a pretty fertile period for me. Just because it, and not necessarily the individual paintings, just like kind of what they said about improvisation and abstraction and stuff. Um, yeah. But then also reading books on physics and stuff like that. And other times I just get kind of locked into these uh, meditations where you can't really represent them musically, but there's definitely an implication to technique. Uh, one piece I have called The Persistence of the Past into the Future. Uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, for clarinet quartet. That was that one is, def- is based on kind of this meditation of like, what would you call the present? What is the present? Um, and kind of the idea of the listener being, being in one moment and not really realizing that the seeds have already been planted for a, a vastly different future. So you have this inspiration, you get in front of the saxophone, you get in front of the piano, you start to sonically resonate these things. At what moment are you like, okay, now I got I got to write this down, or I got to I've got to go to the next stage? I don't necessarily throw it away, but um, sure. definitely a lot of it gets set aside because it's just it doesn't fit. I kind of have two modes. Like there's there's the one idea and and kind of the obsession on that, and then there's also the stream of consciousness variation of that idea, um, which can yield some some surprising results. There's moment to moment thinking and there's big picture thinking. Mm-hmm. Are you always staying very sort of in the moment thinking very specific arrival events or are you thinking big picture? Yeah, so this is actually something that I, I've been thinking a lot about recently. I'm, what I'm seeing is like for me, improvisation and composition are one and the same, but not in the same way that we talk about as far as like this spectrum or this 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 scale of control versus impulsivity. When I'm improvising, especially now in the practice that I've been in, I see the shape before yeah. beforehand. I, I don't know exactly how the milestones will be reached, but I know once I hear that I'm on to the next thing or it's time to start coming to an end. In composition, people have told me that my improvisational background has kind of influenced my composition is that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you'll just jump to the next idea or something. And I just understand structure in a different way because I'm an improviser. And so for me, the only difference between the two is the presence of 
a notation. A project I'm engaged in now is I'm going in and I'm improvising these pieces, but I'm intending them to be recorded so that they're always the same when you experience them. Everybody experiences the pieces. And so, which is essentially what a composition is. Yeah. Um, the, The aspect that is different is that it's not, I don't allow other musicians to replicate it, but as far as like the document of the piece, I have that, you know. Do you think the latter is important? Do you think it's important that a composer be very specific and write it down explicitly so that others can play it and recreate it? I think it depends on the idea. There's some ideas that it just takes me to execute. My kind of relationship to music creation is always situational. Someone's asking me for music, then this is what I'm going to give them. Um, But I can just create music in the moment and that's fine too. I didn't know who the fallen were in this piece, Mm -hmm. but you said was almost like you were sitting in a service for, for some of these people who were murdered and you're sitting at their services uh, with their family. And is, is that what you're trying to capture with this piece? Is that moment being at that service or what's the meaning behind this piece? I I wouldn't say I was trying to capture it, uh, but that's what I felt while I was doing it. Lamentations for the Fallen is the opening track to this album that I just released called Say Their Names. That album is a collection of the seven days in which I was specifically improvising and creating work based on the news of the day um, and how I was reacting to it. Uh, And so Lamentations was the, was uh, I think actually like the second or third piece that I recorded, even though it's the lead. As I was going through it, I just remembered this is really powerful. Like it actually did transport me there. I started yeah. crying. It, it, there's a video of me doing it. And uh, like <laughs> I start crying towards the end of it. And so, yeah, I did have like this idea of what is uh, what is something that I would want to hear if there was a requiem made for these mm-hmm. people. That was that was kind of it. It was just kind of the the kind of abstract but then as I was going through it, it was just such a real experience for me that now I just describe it as me at those services. I felt like I tapped into this kind of universal connection. Explain to us texturally what this piece is. What are the forces? What is this piece? Lately, I've been working with an RC300 uh, loop station. For for people that are, are unaware of it, it's a basically like guitar pedal station with three pedals that allows you to loop at least three 
sounds at the same time. What I've been doing lately is really just engaging with this equipment. And uh, it's been a lot of fun and really fruitful. So this particular piece is part of this um, kind of ongoing collection of pieces that I have at this point, probably over five hours of music now, playing anything from alto saxophone to the Chinese hula se, clarinet, flute, or soprano sax. And then uh, there actually are a couple that now I'm singing on. And uh, so for this particular one, I used alto saxophone. I do a lot of extended extended techniques and timbre sure. work on, on my yeah. instruments. And of course, since I'm working with recording equipment, I, I get to also manipulate uh, microphone distance. So normally a loop station would be for something very straightforward. It would yeah. be like, you know, maybe a, a guitarist at open mic, like playing <laughs> right. and then exactly. looping yeah. it, right? Mm-hmm. So you're doing something similar or something in the tradition of the idea of you hear something and then you hear it again mm-hmm. now with new material over the top. You said, though, you went into the loop station and you messed around with the timing. Yeah. So what was that about? Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, well, so with technology like this, as awesome as it is to get the loops, they have to have kind of a common denominator between them. Uh, And so that means that often these devices will lock into 4-4 and like a particular pulse and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, so sometimes they're almost foolproof, so that you right. can't get out of tempo. Exactly, it'll just loop it back. Yeah, up. yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, what's great about this, though, is that there is you can go into the kind of master settings and you can turn off anything that syncs the individual tracks with each other. So, like, if I open one track and I start looping, I can mm-hmm. loop up to let's say five voices on one track. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, and so I can have 15 voices, let's say, but like, and maybe when I first recorded the other 10 voices, I was doing it with the first loop going. I can then turn one of those loops off and start it again, and it won't start in the same place. So there's a natural drift between them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a, my, um, way of playing around with the counterpoint, uh, of the piece, uh, the polyphony of the piece. But also I can, for each of the tracks, I can, I can play, vary the length of the particular loop so that um, I'll have one loop that's just constantly going, um, you know, every, every 10 seconds, it's just looping back on itself. But then I have another loop that's much longer, maybe like, like that um, opening, that opening melody of Lamentation, where it's meant to be a, a longer loop. Um, that then I can just put in little flares, little uh, filigree that kind of flesh it out more. So then how does improvisation play a role in this? Yeah, so I, I go into the piece, this a piece like this, knowing that uh, I want this particular um, style that is reminiscent of certain practices in Western mm-hmm. music, right? Um, and so I know that among the uh, kind of parameters that I'm that I am predicting, you know, I, I'm I'm guessing like okay, I know that I, I need it to be really dense in texture at a certain point, and then I'll I'll back off of it. I allow however much time is needed to happen. Um, so the 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 milestones may move, but they they will happen. 
Um, and so the, um, the improvisational aspect is just the pitches. What uh, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with the pitches on the spot. Um, perhaps the um, particular, like the use of uh, multiphonics or um, timbre shifts on the, on the instrument. And also um, the use of the instruments. So, uh, sometimes the orchestration is not, I'll, often I don't have the orchestration figured out until like, I'm just like, okay, this could use this. You know, there was still kind of a head at the start <laughs> and then there was sort of a head at the end. Yeah. So there, there was still that like, okay, we're, we're somewhere, you know, we're, we're somewhere near this. But then again, there was this great moment at around four minutes where the solo material, where really there was this strong solo idea, mm. it seemed to sort of just fade into or dissolve into the accompaniment. That's something that um, I definitely toy with in this process is um, what is accompaniment, what is solo, what is foregrounding, what is backgrounding, um, what is the important moment in a gesture, right? So like one of the other things I'll do, maybe do this really long extended flourish of, of you know, fast notes and I'll, I'll um, punch in um, mid flourish on different tracks and like keep doing that so that there's this build. I think I even did it on Lamentations where it's, mm -hmm. there's this build that happens. It sounds completely different from what I've been doing but it's all just what I've been doing. Um, mm -hmm. Just finding a way to stack what I'm doing on top of itself. Um, but yeah, I, uh, among the things that fascinate me is it's like the kind of Western hierarchy of, of instrumental sounds, right? Where it, visually we already have kind of a, 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 a bias on what we're going to pay attention to, but um even just listening, you know, if we're listening to a double bass and a violin, we're always kind of gravitating towards the violin. Uh, and so like, how do you, how do you subvert that kind of relationship? Is that part of your composition in general is like processing things in your life? Do you, is it a processing type event for you to be to creative? I think it's becoming more of that, uh, especially once I started really studying composition uh, in earnest. I was doing the classic composer thing and keeping things that are removed, right? Sure. 
Um, the music comes first. It's about the music, music comes first. Yeah. You know, it's kind of cheesy to try to make comments on, you know, with this uh, string quartet that I'm writing, you know, but like there were a few incidents that happened where like, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I, you know, there is this energy that I'm kind of keeping away from my pieces that maybe they could benefit. So like mm-hmm. with the Freddie Gray situation in Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, I I had written this piece for alto sax and um, clarinet, uh, bass clarinet called Le Fauve. And like uh, my approach to it was that I was thinking of timbre as language and, and kind of going in and just thinking, okay, um, I have these two instruments that are pretty conventional. People look at it, they, they, they basically know what they sound like. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to try to break that, mm-hmm. that. And, and, and the whole point was um, it was related to how, you know, we just, we see a human body in front of us, but we actively work to dehumanize it sure. uh, through our use of language. Um, and then the next kind of event that started, that kept pushing me towards this, um, this use of music as a pro- as processing something was uh, the death of my grandmother in 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, that it's, it, that actually really pushed it to the front. And at that point I kind of was thinking of it, of my output is kind of bifurcated. It's mm-hmm. like, this is my kind of, you know, commissioned work and stuff like that. And this is my personal. Yeah. Uh, and now it, they're fusing together and it's, it's also included um, with my own kind of reckoning with like how to be a composer. (laughs) I kind of, I kind of uh, sublimated a couple of my other attributes as a musician in order to focus on that. Sure. And um, uh, now I'm just like, well, I can't be the musician I'm supposed to be if I don't roll all of that in so um yeah so i would say my music's getting more and more personal um and is now becoming a way for me to process things thank you matthew for coming on and uh just being so open with your opinions and and your music so if we want to find out more about your music and what you do where should we go what where can we go so you can find me if you're interested in my ongoing challenge for 39 seconds of improvisation or, or more. Um, that's called hashtag project 39. Uh, and you can find that on Instagram, uh, Matthew at Matthew Evan Taylor, um, or on Facebook, Matthew Evan Taylor. Um, you can also find my music on SoundCloud, um, uh, soundcloud.com slash M Taylor, 1980. Um, I have, uh, an album that I mentioned, Say Their Names, that is up on Bandcamp as we speak. That is, uh, the proceeds from that uh, go to support Black Lives Matter uh, Equal Justice Initiative. We, we, I, I was able to send um, over $2,000 worth of donations to both of those organizations through the proceeds. Uh, and so um, if people feel so inclined, they can purchase an album. Uh, starting price is $5, but you can donate whatever that um and that's at matthewevantaylor.bandcamp.com thank you to matthew evan taylor for sharing his music and his very important message if you enjoyed this episode and the rest of the podcast 
please download the episodes, like, subscribe, and leave a comment. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.